Welcome to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. I've been talking to veterans about how they recover from war because I think we all, to some extent, need to recover from these wars that have been fought in our name. And I think part of our recovery will be admitting and accepting that we have lost these wars. Today, I have a conversation with Elliot Woods, a veteran who is also a very fine journalist. He spent a year as a combat engineer in northern Iraq, 2004-2005. Then he came home and went to school at the University of Virginia, studying history and religion, earning a degree in English literature. He thought about staying in school and becoming a professor, but he decided he wanted to go back to war, this time as a journalist. He embedded with combat units in Afghanistan and spent time living as a civilian among the people in Baghdad and Gaza. In 2011, he won the National Magazine Award for a series of stories published by the Virginia Quarterly Review. He's an excellent writer and photographer. No stancing or beating around the bush. He has a way of grabbing you by the shoulders and slapping you upside the head. I called him on the phone in Ann Arbor, where he's spending a year as a Knight Wallace journalism fellow at the University of Michigan. All right, I'm recording. All right. So the main ideas, you know, that I said in the introduction is I think we should admit that we've lost. And I don't know whether you agree with that or not. Is, are, did we lose these wars? That's the question. Do you think that we lost these wars? Yeah, I do. I really do. And I think that there was no chance that we could win them. I think they were unwinnable. I think we won them for as long as we could, but our winning was always contingent on the maintenance of huge numbers of troops on the ground, which was something that would be impossible to sustain forever. So, you know, it's really easy to take terrain when you have superior force or you have initiative, you know, you have the superior initiative or you have some advantage that allows you, whether it's surprise or whether it's overwhelming military force, whatever it is, taking terrain is not, not, so much the difficult part, especially for a country like the United States, the difficult and sometimes impossible part is holding terrain, capitalizing on victories in order to build something that can be defended by the people who actually live there. And we never succeeded in doing that in Afghanistan. And I don't think we've succeeded in doing it in Iraq either. I mean, I think that the Middle East is in a period of unbelievable instability right now. So did we lose there? Uh, if the goal was to produce a strong and stable Iraqi democracy, um, then I sure wouldn't say that we've won. In Afghanistan, did you think yeah. that we were winning the war when no. we were there? No, definitely not. What did no. you think when you were in Afghanistan about what was going on with our military efforts? Well, so I first went to Afghanistan in the fall of 2009, and the number of troops in Afghanistan had roughly doubled between the end of the Bush administration and that time. And there was all this excited talk about counterinsurgency theory and strategy and... Um, 
how they were going to put soldiers on these combat outposts and they were going to be working right alongside of the Afghan military and police. And they were going to be doing all this development stuff and, um, you know, getting people back to work and helping them make their farms viable again and developing water sources and developing political leadership and all that kind of stuff. But the bigger idea was make them self-sustaining. It was more like um, force multiplication developing the capacity of a population to defend itself. So that's what was happening where I was in 2009 in Wardak province with the 10th mountain division. And I think they were doing as good of a job of it as they possibly could. But, you know, you look at that landscape and you read the history of the place and learn about the culture of the place. And it, even then, you know, with all of this optimism, with new troops pouring in all the time and tons of money flying around and all that kind of stuff, it was just really, really hard to imagine that people who wanted to fuck things up wouldn't always have the upper hand on that, on that terrain. Why? Because Well, because the government that we were trying to build was a foreign concept and would always be seen as part of a foreign effort to change the culture. And because even the people who were collaborating with with us at the time, like Hamid Karzai, were playing us both ways. Even they didn't really believe in the system of government that they were accepting our help to build. So the levels of corruption were astonishing. The ability of Afghan leaders to use the power of NATO forces and the might of NATO forces and the money of NATO forces to work against their rivals in competitions that went back generations was amazing. And we just were completely out of our league. And we should have known that this would be the case because it's everywhere in the Russian account, in the Soviet accounts of being in Afghanistan and because we had our own experience in Vietnam, which was very similar. Um, what, what so the expression that I would hear... Okay, all right. The expression that I would hear, which I think is great, is that the Taliban would say the Americans have all the watches, but we have all the time. <laughs> you know, and you're you're walking through these incredibly remote mountain valleys with 15,000 foot, 16,000 foot peaks flanking these river valleys where people are scraping out, you know, a meager existence on onions and, and fruit trees and whatever, and goats and sheep and whatever they can grow on the little patch of grass at the bottom of the river valley. And their, their existence is so rudimentary in these places. You know, they're using handmade water wheel systems to, to irrigate their crops and they're building houses with mud bricks that have perfect right angles and have lasted with repairs for, you know, dozens to hundreds of years. There's no way to tell how old anything is. You know, they're packing entire families on motorcycles to go over these mountain passes. And and the Taliban, it was clear that they were made of the same stuff, that they weren't going to be frightened off by getting killed in high numbers or by Apache helicopters or F-15s or night vision or long-range sniper capacity, that none of these things were going to scare them away from sneaking out into a field in the middle of the night and burying 15 pounds of explosives and shrapnel in a plastic jug and attaching a kite string to it and waiting for an American patrol to walk by. 
So it was this amazing situation where it was so clear that all of the technological sophistication in the world is useless against somebody who can fix a motorcycle with bailing wire and a rock. It's useless against someone who can hike up and down some of the steepest, most impenetrable mountains in the world, wearing knockoff sneakers and eating a ration of, you know, rice with some cooking oil. Like the enemy was formidable and fierce and determined and it was their home. That's yeah. where they lived. Yeah. So eventually we would leave. And when we left, it was pretty clear to me from the beginning and only got more clear over time. When we left, the terrain that we had taken and tried to hold at such incredible cost of blood and treasure, both American and Afghan and British and Canadian and others, um, primarily Afghan, the terrain that we had taken and tried to hold since 2001, that we would lose it really quickly. So, um, you know, and, and that was my sense at the time. And then shortly after I stopped going to Afghanistan, um, I saw a video on YouTube of Taliban fighters in a parade of motorcycles riding into the very same combat outpost that I had been on on my trip in 2009. Wow and waving flags and, and having a party there in how the Tangy did, Valley. How did that feel? Um, it feels really bad. It feels really, really, really bad. Because people died to hold that place for a few years. People that, I, I, thankfully, no one in the unit that I was with from the 10th mountain division died while I was there, but lots of them had died before I got there. Um, and primarily in IED attacks, hmm. but also, you know, the, I, I saw people, I saw, um, I saw a completely innocent old man farmer get killed by an Apache gunship during a firefight when I was there in 2009, hmm. there was a machine gun team. Um, you know, whether they were Taliban or whatever, I don't, I don't know some other group. I don't know. I never found out, but there was a machine gun team that opened fire on a group of Afghan national army soldiers who were on an, on a multi-day operation with a Marine training team. This little Marine training team was, was embedded with this Afghan national army unit and they were on a multi-day operation through this valley and this machine gun team waited for them to pass and then opened fire from the rear. So that started off this big firefight. The Marines were able to call in air support and the Apaches rolled in and I saw this guy running across this field and he was wearing this kind of loose fitting light colored clothing and he was running and I, I could see him pretty clearly from where I was on this hill. And then the Apaches rolled in and started firing at him with their cannons and he didn't fall immediately. He kind of was freaking out. It looked like, and then he, he eventually fell to the ground and then the Apaches wheeled back in the other direction and, um, opened fire on, on this position that where the fire had been coming from. 
And so we went over there and there was a, one of the guys from the machine gun team was there and, you know, his body was twisted in half from the impact of the explosive shell and his brain was completely outside of his skull, just lying there on the ground. So, you know, they, they got that guy and then we went to the other location and it was just this old man with a long white beard, this really thin old man with a long white beard who, you know, had just been out in his village when this, when this patrol went by and in the wrong place at the wrong time and got killed by an Apache gunship. So, you know, were we bringing, so one for one, you know, we had one so-called bad guy. That's the term that everybody used at the time. And one innocent civilian, you know, is that worth it for us? Did that make the United States safer? Did that make the world safer? Well, it sure as hell didn't make it safer for anybody in that village. And, you know, that night the elders came up to where we were bivouacked for the evening and they negotiated, I guess, a a price for his life and um, asked why they had done it, you know, and there were no, no good answers, you know, and everybody was pretty bummed out about it. Everybody was, everybody was really unhappy about it, but that kind of stuff happened all the time. You know, the, the Taliban have killed an extraordinary number of civilians and the U S and NATO forces have killed less, have killed fewer civilians, but the U S and NATO have still killed a lot of civilians in Afghanistan, all in the name of building a a stable Afghan government that can provide a bulwark against global terrorism, you know, but it's not working (laughs) and it, and it, uh, and it never worked. And the more soldiers we put on the ground there, the more fighting there was. And the more fighting there was, the more civilians got killed. And then I started to ask myself, well, what about these people who were calling Taliban or who call themselves Taliban? What about them? Are they, would they be, would there be 19 year old kids volunteering to go bury IEDs on the side of the road if we weren't here? You know, the, the, the so-called bad guys would, and I thought that in Iraq too, would they be joining these militias and risking their lives if we weren't here? And what would, what would I do if they were here? If this was my town, what would I do? How much of this is actually ideology and how much of it is the fact that, you know, there's a base with helicopters flying in and out all day and these huge scary vehicles and these dudes who walk through your village with body armor and sunglasses and these huge weapons like they own the world... I mean, it's like, um, it's like being invaded by space aliens. So do you feel like you went, had to go through a process of recovery after these experiences over there? Well, yeah, without a doubt, learning to operate in an environment where your life is in danger changes you. It changes you physiologically, it changes you psychologically. So I've had to learn to release that tension and let my guard down. And I I probably will never, never fully change back to what I was before, but it wasn't, you know, 
it wasn't just being in combat. I mean, if you're, you know, I, I went to Baghdad by myself the day after the troops withdrew across, across the border to Kuwait in huh. 2011. As a journalist? Yeah, as a journalist. So... Why did you go back? Was that part of your recovery? Well, I, I went back to the Middle East after college because I felt really upset and really angry and really sad about the tragedy that had unfolded there. And I felt guilty and I still feel guilty. Huh. And so I wanted to be in the Middle East as a normal person without a weapon between me and the people who live there. I wanted to live in the Middle East as a normal person and try to understand that place and try to get to know some of the people who live there on their terms. I guess that was part of healing for me. I mean, so this is the thing. I don't, I don't think that I've ever had post-traumatic stress disorder according to the diagnostic criteria in the DSM. But when I came home from Iraq and when I went to college, I mean, I, I had two friends who were killed in Iraq I, in my unit. We, I had two friends who were killed by a suicide bomber. Huh. And by the time I got home, I was already really conflicted about why that happened and whether that, you know, whether that was justifiable loss for their families, which is why I spent my senior year of college writing about their parents and their friends. You know, they were two among many people who had been killed in this war that had never really been explained in a convincing way. The justification for it had never really made sense to me. And so by the time I left college uh, after my tour in Iraq, I was really, really angry, really mad, really angry, really deep down angry at the country, at civilians, at politicians at the media, at, at a lot of different people. And one of the things among many things that I was angry about was how the right wing media had convinced the country that an entire region of the world consisted of nothing but bloodthirsty turbaned terrorists. And based on my limited experience in Iraq, I knew that that was not true. Huh. And so I wanted to go back and I wanted to go back and I guess write that wrong in my own heart to the extent that I could. I mean, it sounds kind of silly saying it now, but, um, yeah, I think that, that I wanted to heal from that anger and the way that I could heal from that anger was by going and living there and breaking bread with them and eating food with them like a normal person and learning their language, you know? That's so. more important than the writing part? Well, the writing part was, was the... always, the writing part was always going to be a part of it. Journalism over the years has given me an outlet for all of this rage and sadness that, that a lot of veterans don't have. And I'm really thankful for that. So, so. how does that outlet thing work in the writing process and the how does it work in terms of healing or recovery does it yeah i think it does i mean i i think it definitely does so 
again, I want to be clear that I don't think that I'm healing from post-traumatic stress disorder, but, um, I think that being able to organize my thoughts and my feelings and being able to make sense of the world with reference to history and geopolitics and anthropology and religious history and philosophy and literature and all of that kind of stuff, being able to call on all of those resources and then organize all of it into a story saves me from the confusing abyss of unfocused trauma. I mean, that's, so we know that from science about PTSD that people, so it's, this is not a, you know, a universal, but generally speaking, rates of PTSD are higher um, among people with lower levels of education. Oh, so you should probably fact check that, but that was that was a that was something that I came across in in my reading a long time ago. Um, and at the time, the the hypothesis was that people with higher levels of education are able to contextualize their experience in a bigger narrative, in a bigger set of events and factors, versus being you know, shipped off to war as a 19 year old recruit fresh out of training and coming home and going back to your, your life without anybody ever really explaining to you what it was all about or why you were there, what happened or without any, any real understanding that what you're going through, you know, whether it's extreme levels of anxiety or grief or self-loathing or guilt or rage or anger or any of those things that, um, you know, alienation from the civilian population, that none of that is unique. So you gain incredible strength from the perspective of realizing that none of this shit is new at all. You know, this is what the Odyssey is about. These stories are in the Iliad. These stories are in the Bible. These stories are in Beowulf. These stories are are everywhere. Um, so I think for me, I probably forestalled a lot of the more damaging effects of being in some of the environments that I was in and, and witnessing and, and participating in some of the things that I did by being a reader and a writer and and an artist, really. Um, so, but I think that, um, you know, new wars like with Iran, well, if president Trump were not president, I would, I would say that war with Iran is exceedingly unlikely, but with president Trump in office, anything is possible. And I think it would be a terrible mistake. First of all, the military is, is broken, you know, is it? Yeah. People who've been in the military who are now in the senior ranks of the non-commissioned officer corps and the officer corps have been deploying for 20 years. Huh? If you've been in the military since nine 11, or even since 2005 or 2010, you've got multiple deployments under your belt. You, your body's taken an incredible beating. You've dealt with extraordinary stress. And I mean, imagine you're a general right now and you're looking at what's happened to people like Mattis 
what kind of psychological stress do you think that puts on somebody who, who's been in the military for 25, 30 years? Now, what's happened to Mattis? Well, what's happened to Mattis is that he, he tried to keep the president from making catastrophic strategic decisions in the Middle East, and the president just totally ignored him and then eventually, you know, essentially fired him. I mean, he resigned, but he, he was basically fired. And what were his big objections? He objected to the idea of taking a, um, a war footing with Iran, and he objected to the idea of abandoning the Kurds in Syria, and he objected to the idea of shifting responsibility for war fighting in Afghanistan to mercenaries in the employ of Eric Prince. Hmm. I mean, that's that's my perspective, and I'm I'm an outsider. I'm not in the military. Um, I haven't been on an embed in a long time, but my sense is that the military has been under an incredible amount of stress for a really long time. And, and that that has to be having an effect on morale, on leadership, on who decides to stay in, you know, if you lose promising young NCOs, for example, because they're just tired of deploying every two years or because their bodies are broken or because their minds are broken, then you don't have the institutional leadership that you need to train the younger ranks of soldiers. And that's a real problem. So I have no doubt that there are incredible NCOs and officers who are in the military right now doing the best they can with with the resources that they have. But I also think that, you know, if you, if you think of the military as a war machine, just use a metaphor, it's a war machine. The military also has a lot of actual machines, but then every soldier and Marine and sailor and airman is also a machine. Um, machines take a beating when they're overused and they need to be repaired. They need to be taken out of the line of service and they need to be restored and repaired and maintained before they can be put back into service. And our war machine has been wasted fighting unnecessary wars for almost 20 years now at an extraordinary cost in terms of blood and treasure. And so the idea that we would now use this war machine that is already overstressed to start yet another unnecessary war with a country that shows every bit of promise to be as difficult and impossible as Iraq if we were to occupy it, um, it just sounds insane to me. I mean, completely crazy and stupid. I just can't for the life of me imagine why that would, that would be a smart thing to do. I'd like to thank Elliot Woods for talking about these things. And I encourage you to check out his work, print photos and video on his website, elliotwoods.com. These war stories are hard to listen to, hard to accept. But, you know, last year, 2019, we set a record for the number of bombs dropped on Afghanistan. 4,700. That's 20 bombs a day on average. And it's crazy. We lost the war, but we're still bombing the country, killing civilians, making more enemies because we're in denial. Not talking about it, not thinking about it, That's why I'm playing these stories. So thanks very much for listening and supporting this show. 
I very much appreciate it.